Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from an undisclosed location in an ice cream trailer, a repurposed ice cream trailer, deep in the woods of western Wisconsin. And you can, of course, find this show by listening live on Revolution.Radio, the greatest of listener-sponsored networks supporting all-out free speech. If it's legal, you can say it here on Revolution.Radio. Please do support Revolution.Radio. And my website is truthjihad.com. And by the way of truthjihad.com, you can find your way to my Substack, which is kevinbarrett.substack.com. I try to talk to the most interesting folks who have something important to say outside of the mainstream box. And tonight we're going to Canada to talk to a Canadian patriot. And our Canadian patriot is Matthew Errett. Matthew Errett is uh, definitely one of the most uh, interesting, younger, 9-11-influenced intellectuals. And uh, looks like we got him on the line. I think I hear him now. Uh, he, he has a Canadian Patriot website, a Substack, and he just put out both uh, two great articles, one by him and another uh, reposted article by Winter Oak on King Charles and the question of why was it King Charles who launched the Great Reset and why is the British crown the world's biggest property owner? Uh, is there more to this British crown than just being you know, front people and show business uh, imposters who don't really run anything? And the answer to that is uh, probably at least partly in the affirmative. Let's hear about it from Matt himself. Hey, welcome, Matt. How are you? Hey, thank you for having me back on, Kevin. It was a pleasure. Okay, good to have you. Yeah, those were great articles, both yours and the one from Winter Oak, who I didn't remember, uh, wasn't very familiar with. But they're a, a great one-two punch of responses, maybe the best two uh, responses that I've seen to this incredible, amazing news that the queen passed away and a new king was brought in. Uh, we're all supposed to, what are we supposed to do, but get down on our knees and, and scream, God save the king. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a Republican with a small R, U.S. American, and we, you know, our whole political identity is based on getting out of the British Empire at the cost of some blood. So it doesn't really make sense to me, but somehow a lot of other U.S. Americans are all excited at following the tabloid exploits of the royal family and get very excited when the queen dies and the king becomes the, the new whatever. He's not the leader of the unfree world. I don't know what to call him. So, so what the heck is going on? Why does anybody care about this and why are the royals important? Well, it, it is definitely uh, there's a weird um, thing just that's wrapped around the, the veneer or this mystique of the royals and the crown. And I don't fully understand all of it. I, I was surprised even that that some relatively saner voices amongst the anti great reset crowd, like uh, even you know Tucker Carlson um, in Canada, we have rebel media. There's a lot of conservative voices who have been speaking relatively well about the abrogation of our freedoms. Um, that has come in the wake of the Great Reset Agenda. And, you know, they're, they're, it's useful. But yet, regarding the death of the Queen, it's been the most slavish, um, weird pro-British Empire um, eulogies that I've seen being delivered. That I mean, even Tucker Carlson went so far as to devote his entire segment that I, I watched today to a, a defense not only of the Queen as this stature of grandeur and civilization, but the British Empire as a whole, where he even said... The, the 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 most disgusting stuff about how um how great how much civilization and wonder Britain as an empire brought to India and Africa and his proof was well look what happened yeah. when they left and look how ungovernable Africa became 
uh, without oh, the British Empire. Tucker. And look, oh, fail. <laughs> Disgusting fail. I mean, I, I really don't know what has gotten into the minds of a lot of the conservatives um, out there who really don't see that the, the king that is coming online, well, not only the king, but the entire network of these inbred um, want-to-be elites that profess to be the guardians of the world. I mean, King uh, uh, Prince Philip of Montbatten, the father of, of, uh, of Charles, all of these figures were the essence and embodiment of everything that these conservatives profess to despise in terms of pushing the depopulation agenda. That's what Prince Philip um, did as he founded the, um, the World Wildlife Fund, along with Prince Bernhard and Julian Huxley back in the 60s saying again and again that he wants to come back as a deadly virus in the next life to solve overpopulation. Um, Prince he, Charles himself. Maybe he did. I mean, didn't he just maybe die and COVID comes along? Maybe. maybe that there was a certain coincidence there, and maybe, who knows, the queen might uh, be reincarnating as a, as a weird new mutation of something or other. I, who knows, well, right? She better be a much worse <laughs> virus than COVID if she wants to kill off most of the population. Well, she's been safer. I mean, she she's been more disciplined than her uh, more uh, lazy mouthed husband over the years, and it's hard to find, it's hard to peg her openly for saying anything that disgusting. Unlike Charles, that you could fill books and volumes of his, you know, <laughs> anti human uttering since the fifties. Um, so she's much more disciplined and stoic. But undoubtedly, when you look at you know the type of networks that she has been protecting, interfacing with in terms of Jimmy Saville, the renowned pedophile who has upwards of 500 uh, children under his uh, his meat list of, uh, of victims as well. And going to the age of like two years old, the networks of MPs that were part of these high profile pedophile rings that she honored with things like knighthoods. Um, there's she's definitely she's not ignorant of what she was doing. And Charles was, uh, you know, a mentee of people like Jimmy Seville, as was uh, Prince Philip earlier. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely something nasty that she is self-aware of. Anybody who said that she's just this innocent symbol, uh, <laughs> I don't believe it whatsoever. I think that you you got to be pretty dumb to not be aware of the evil that has been done and is continuously being done in the name of the British Empire. Well, you know, David, David Icke's theory that the royals are blood-sucking, human flesh-devouring lizards from outer space is metaphorically pretty accurate, isn't it? Oh, metaphorically, absolutely. I know they're definitely. I think Sean Stone um, put it in a pretty useful way when he got across that, like they're they're very in touch with their reptilian brain. <laughs> that, that, there you go. But uh, I, I I like to think of it as me metaphorical. I think David Ike unfortunately doesn't necessarily think of the words he uses as as metaphorical, um, which kind of <laughs> undermines some of the the message he tries to get across. But yeah, there there's definitely something anti-human there. And, and, you know, I wouldn't even put it outside the bounds of possibility that uh, David Icke, with his more, you know, out there speculations, might, it, it, the reality might be almost as weird as, as his theories in that. I mean, I don't know where you stand on these issues of the existence of uh, jinn or uh, evil spirits, uh, the black magic of some humans who engage in commerce with, with the, the, dark gin and uh, the possibility that some of the UFO phenomena that are starting to be disclosed by the authorities today may be involved with that as uh, people like Charles Upton have written about. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if the Royals like a lot of other members of the elite are parts of 
you know, secret societies with bizarre quote unquote religious beliefs who get in touch with otherworldly entities that help them maintain their power and privilege, uh, often through very despicable practices, both ritual practices and then the crimes they uh, are helped to commit by these these jinn. Now that's that's you know taking the, the Muslim viewpoint that you know we're assured in the Quran that the, the jinn are are real and they're not all bad, but quite a few of them are. It's better to be careful of them. Anyway, just I, I have no idea what your take on that stuff is, but it's hmm. the, again the reality might be almost as crazy as uh, as what we've heard from David Icke and others. Well, yeah, I mean, I you know I, I try to um, in my in my personal uh, view of things, I definitely am, am quite persuaded that at the upper echelons there has there is now and has been since ancient times an inner sort of satanic religion um, reserved for the the upper initiates who are conditioned and trained to awaken passions and and um, urges and lusts that are the most anti-natural, the, the most in the greatest opposition to the law of nature um, and, and God and God's will that you could possibly imagine and blood drinking and other things that are the most atrocious things you could imagine are uh, conditioned amongst them to uh, to be loved and, and desired. So yeah, it gets. I'm, I'm sure of of all of these ritualistic things, and I believe that there is occult beliefs and sacrifices to all sorts of nasty black, you know, black magic and, and Satan. I, I think that that's definitely true. I mean, I've read Albert Pike and uh, his Morals and Dogma, and he's very clear at the at the later chapters um, that the real god of the Southern Rite Freemasons or is, Freemasons is uh, is Lucifer. Um, in opposition to the Adonai, the evil god of the Christians, right, who they position in this Manichaean dualism, um, and that Lucifer is the actual good one. So, um, yeah, I do believe that. I, I personally, I'm not persuaded that in my in my research thus far that they're actually getting assistance from supernatural forces, though I do believe that they believe it. Um, but, you know, who knows? There's a lot I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm not clear on all the details either. Although I, I, I've had in my life two sort of brushes with satanic cults that seemingly tried to recruit me, but huh. not very hard. Uh, but and and then with the folks I've talked to on this radio show, uh, some of them were like there was a defector from a satanist group and such. So yeah, I think these groups are very real. And to what extent they've penetrated the elite, I don't know. But it, it sure is interesting that the top level elite is so depraved. And that people mm. like Jimmy Savile and uh, Jeffrey Epstein are really the more the rule than the exception, and they yeah. might not even be the worst. I mean, there might be worse stuff going on even than that. So yeah. it's uh, it's it's yeah, it's, it's kind of depressing in a way that this planet is ruled by the worst of us rather than the best of us. And of course, the the basic idea, uh, the core idea in uh, the political philosophy that would grow out of Islam and probably a lot of other traditions as well is that yeah, including classical philosophy is, is that we should be ruled by the best not by the worst so <laughs> things are really upside down at this point aren't they yeah well I mean yeah that's the 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 ideal of I think the greatest uh, statesmen and philosophers is the idea that there is a, a law of God and, and a law of man and the law of man can always be tuned ever more perfectly without ever achieving perfection to God's laws, the greater sort of design and blueprint that should guide us if we follow our conscience and our reason together. And people like, you know, you know, St. Augustine and lays it out he knows in his own way in the city of God and and Thomas More lays it out in his way in Utopia. 
um, in an ironic way, you know, just sort of showcasing where it goes wrong. Plato does the same thing in the Republic by showcasing the ideal is good, but then he, he plants some some traps to, to, you know, showcase where this can get really ugly if you have some wrong assumptions about the nature of human beings as being, you know, if, if you want to train the guardians, Plato says, uh, you know, he has one of his characters say, well, don't we want to look at how do you train your dogs and breed the best dogs? And so he's, he's planting sort of a, um, a challenge for his students at the academy to try to figure out, well, how does something that is such a good and just ideal go so fascist by having unexamined assumptions about the nature of human beings? Um, but the overarching aspiration is to create a philosopher king or a society of philosopher kings where everybody has access to tap into and, and develop their deeper love of wisdom and the, and, and the pleasures that come from the pursuit and capturing of discoveries and wisdom and sharing that. And if you can get that as a cultural um, dynamic that is set into motion and and make it institutionalized so that it can transcend multiple generations, you know, then you've got something that is durable as, as far as a human civilization fit to survive is concerned. I think Ben Franklin was trying to do that, too, by creating these, you know, these juntos, these these philosophical societies uh, over the course of 40 years to try to create a cultural vibrancy of wisdom in society that could then have a republic endure and not fall into mob rule that could be then easily manipulated by demagogue, which has always been the flip side of tyranny, right? Mob democracy by itself was understood by the founding fathers to be the the very, you know, the, pretty much the same thing as tyranny, but tyranny of the stupid who could then be just have their emotions manipulated to be turned into weaponized masses by a, a Robespierre, somebody who could speak well and rabble, rabble rouse. So Ben Franklin understood that it was a, a democratic republic and not a democracy that was created. And unfortunately, I think we've fallen a little bit too much into the, uh, yeah, the I, I like to think with my emotions type of uh, political political society where people don't really think with reason anymore or, or their conscience. And they can just fall for a Justin Trudeau or, a, you know, <laughs> a, a Biden and actually think that there's something authentic there because they're just having their emotions appeal to and not their uh, not their mind. Absolutely. Well, uh, before we get back to King Charles and the Great mm, right. Reset, uh, you, you greatly admire Ben Franklin and, of course, despise Albert Pike. Now, a lot of people argue, I, I think, as I recall, Franklin was a Freemason, was he not? So are, are there branches of Freemasonry that are devoted to good as well as those like Pike's devoted to evil? In Ben Franklin's day, I don't think I've seen no evidence that there that there is in existence in our current world anymore, any honest uh, <laughs> a branch or lodges of Freemasonry. But I do think in the 18th and 19th centuries, there was more of a preponderance of some lodges that did have an opposition to the oligarchical uh, worldview. There was, I mean, you know, there's such fights that you see both within and amongst various lodges, the Southern right having been created as a, a British operation within uh, South Carolina in uh, 1801 by, I forget his name, ah, let's forget, some er early deep stater. Um, the Southern right was always pretty evil. Um, there were certain French lodges, a couple of English, uh, or not English, but American lodges like the Society of Cincinnati, which was a sort of branch of Freemasonry that was um, focused on the sons and grandsons of uh, generals and soldiers of the American Revolution. Um, that were more tied to something noble, where you see those people tending to sacrifice their lives uh, for the ideal of what human beings could become against empire. Again, I, I think that in the case of Europe, a lot of these more 
uh, humanist branches were purged and destroyed during the Napoleonic Wars and especially with the 1815 Congress of Vienna, um, where, you know, the, the networks around Mozart were really destroyed in Vienna. Mozart was also a Freemason around the Schenkenator Lodge. Um, but if you look yeah, at the different approaches, rumors that, that he uh, may have uh, you know, one, one theory of his death is that he may have been poisoned for uh, exposing some of the secrets of the Freemasons. Well, he wrote that to his wife. Uh, there's open letters where he wrote, writes to his wife that he believes that he had been poisoned. And uh, he, I mean, it wasn't just in the magic flute, but it was in all of his work as a cultural warrior. He was awakening a very Promethean spirit in his music, uh, in his Requiem and so many other things that were an anathema to the type of cultural aesthetics that would be necessary for empires to maintain their cattle in a sensuous state living within the shadows in a cave. So there's certain types of categories of science and music which awaken a sovereignty of the being of the, of the individual, which it taps us, I think, ever more, a little bit more deeply into uh, God's essence. And I think anybody who listens to Mozart's Requiem as one example uh, would get a sense of what that is. So I think him, people like Percy Shelley, who also died at a very mysterious circumstance around the 1821 period, uh, Keats also died at 26. A lot of the there are a lot of really amazing cultural warriors who died under very strange circumstances, um, and top scientists too who are working with Ben Franklin, like Lavoisier, Jean-Sylvain Bailly. They all had their heads cut off. Some other ones died of poisoning. So yeah, there, the, the whole period between the the Jacobin Terror of when the, when the French Revolution turned into a bloodbath. Um, all the way up until 1815 in the Congress of Vienna, there was a big fight to extract any humanist impulses within Europe and especially within the, the European lodges and what came out of it. I saw no evidence after 18, 1815 that anything non-satanic <laughs> existed within, within masonry of Europe. And uh, you had some, some evidence that there were humanist lodges that did continue in the United States that took a little bit longer to purge. And I think by the Cold War time, I didn't see any evidence that there was residues left uh, in the United States. So the bad guys won once again. Uh, <laughs> At least on the lodge, on the on the Freemasonic lodge level, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> right, right. But the struggle continues, and so now we have uh, King Charles and the appeal to the emotions of the masses, as as everyone is supposed to sort of, you know, be you know, kneel down and and uh, somehow accept this uh, magical legitimacy. Of, of this new king, and uh, the usual critique of the king from sort of a left media would would be that well he's irrelevant and you know kind of a, he's a leftover from a different time, and they would probably generally sort of admire from a perspective of it's kind of superficial and uninformed his environmental work and so on and so forth. But you point out that it's actually kind of suspicious and concerning that uh, Charles is the guy who launched the Great Reset. And it's also kind of concerning that the British crown is the world's largest property owner. So we put those two facts together and we have the top officials of all the Five Eyes Commonwealth member states having to swear allegiance to King Charles. This is all kind of strange and it suggests that there's maybe more going on than just a, a meaningless sort of theatrical show uh, taking people back to these sort of ancient emotions, but, you know, without any modern relevance. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I, for, for me, the first person that I encountered, I think I mentioned this to you before, who, who brought up, and here I am in British Canada, right? Like the queen is our head of state. The governor general is the branch of the crown. We've got a privy council, lieutenant governors unelected, right? Appointees of the queen, um, in every province who have to give royal assent to everything that becomes law, who can, uh, accept or deny any type of call to prorogue parliament or not. So it's like you have this weird structure of power above the elected regime inside of Canada. And it's like the same thing for Australia and New Zealand. Very difficult for a lot of Americans to understand or wrap their mind around this. And frankly, very difficult for a lot of Canadians to even understand this because we don't learn about this properly in school, which is designed to keep us in a super, in a state where most Canadians even believe we're a democracy with Justin Trudeau or whichever prime minister is our, as our head of state. Not true at all. Um, and you get to see it. I mean, I think a lot of people for the first time were shocked to see uh, Justin Trudeau declaring his oath of allegiance uh, to the crown and her majesty, the queen and all of her heirs in 2017, which he's going to have to do again with every single member of parliament very soon. Now that Charles has become king, uh, King Charles III. And I think the same thing is going to be taking place in New Zealand and Australia and Britain um, as far as oaths of fealty. So <clears throat> there is a power that I think people have to grapple with. And the first person who introduced me to that idea, or, and I was offended by it originally, was Lyndon LaRouche like 15 years ago, who said, yeah, the British Empire still exists. I was like, what are you talking about, old man? And uh, <laughs> like, and it was only when I, I really started digging into it and realizing, oh, no, that, that actually is very true. The empire, no empire just willfully dissolves itself like we're told the British Empire did after World War II. And now it just gave the baton to the American junior partner to become the king. No, not at all. What killed JFK, what killed Bobby Kennedy with, uh, you know, <laughs> had been trying to work with the, it's, you know, operatives within the United States since 1776, who, who were kind of like British Empire stay behinds, uh, acting like on the surface American patriots after the, the revolution was won, but never really having any loyalty to the Constitution. People like Aaron Burr, who founds Wall Street, um, there's always been this subtle, invisible empire run out of the city of London with a multifaceted um, control system, which on the one hand has a banking complex. And on the other hand, it has an intelligence complex uh, through the uh, through British intelligence, which has taken several manifestations, which has created things like the CIA, which has operated um, to control people like Teddy Roosevelt, who created the FBI, who brought in people like Hoover as a, uh, a 33rd degree me uh, Freemason very quickly. And you've always had this sort of subtle force that runs things like the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, right? The, the, the American branch of British Chatham House in America, which Hillary Clinton called the mothership. Um, this is really what's there with the Rhodes Scholars around Bill Clinton, who are all over the Biden administration. There's so many Rhodes Scholars. It's, it's the same British Empire, and they've been working to subvert from within their belligerent colony that that declared independence and they tried you know in the war of 1812 to to destroy it and subdue it physically they failed they tried again during the civil war when the british were backing in a massive way the con the confederation of the the slave power in the south that failed and they then focused throughout the 20th century all of their energy on more of a um an internal subvert from within type of approach that was also used to destroy athens um after, you know, during the age of Pericles a long time ago, a similar model was used to to corrupt and destroy the people through sophistry, a cultural a culture of decadence um, and also just basic intelligence and Freemasonic operations as well, which didn't hurt. And the occasional assassination. 
Um, so now we're at a point where I think people are getting to just confront the loud ugliness of it with Prince Charles, as you pointed out, a, uh, a key figure in the Great Reset. I mean, it, it was him and not Klaus Schwab who was selected to announce and unveil and patronize the Great Reset in June 3rd, uh, 2020. Um, he is he has been one like he considers himself sort of an activist king where the the former veneer of the the crown was to be sort of in behind as a fount of honors around which the empire could sort of revolve in an orbit, but not really have real power. That's not necessarily true, but that was at least the veneer, whereas Prince Charles has made it clear. No, he's going to have a much more kind of like Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, you know, a much more active uh, role. As a as a manager, even though I personally don't think he's smart enough to be a real manager, I, I think when you look at Prince Charles, he really does talk the plants and he does really believe that we have to put, you know, uh, little bags on cow cow asses, which he's been funding to collect their farts to stop global warming. I think he actually thinks that stuff is important um, on some level, but I think he has handlers who want to use him and they want to use the, the institution of the crown. Um, as something that maintains a continuity of, of oligarchical power. So that's a real force that does exist today, and it, it is, I think, something that people have to learn very quickly is, uh, is, more, is more deeply embedded than, uh, than they realize in not only the, the political structures, but also in the psyche of people as we see now, even with Britons, British people who don't want to suffer through starvation and freezing to death in an energy crisis that has no reason to happen this winter, but... They don't like the Great Reset. A lot of conservatives in, in the West don't like the Great Reset. They don't like the artificial scarcity being created to promote or to convince uh, the human herd that we have to call our, our species. They don't like that, but they can't help but still like sing God Save the Queen and, and uh, you know, cry tears of joy when King Charles is, is being inducted now. They, and they don't see how this is an like completely contradictory impulses, right? Well, as long this as guy is the Great the, Reset. The Sex Pistols version of God Save the Queen. I that's okay. Okay with that. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, I, I wonder if there's an oligarchical force uh, that's really deeper than just you know, the British Empire, or the UK, the the American state, and maybe that could help us sort of solve this apparent conundrum of what happened in World War II. Uh, in 1940, the election was stolen. Uh, when the Republican Party, which was essentially nothing but anti-interventionists who didn't want to join World War II, uh, was hijacked and uh, they, they, they killed the manager of the convention so that this classic PSYOP could be employed to make Wendell Wilkie the nominee of the Republican Party. Now, he was pretty much the only Republican in America at that time who was actually pro-interventionist in favor of entering World War II. And that meant that Roosevelt, who was also in the interventionist camp, didn't have an anti-interventionist opponent, gave the uh, anti-interventionist 80 percent of the American population, nobody to vote for. And then the media did the rest to make sure that Roosevelt got reelected uh, and uh, Wilkie continued to play that role, but then apparently had to be killed off rather young. Um, this story is told in Ron Unz's uh, new book, uh, or one of his six new books, um, and by the way, I'm, I'm doing an event on conspiracy theories, which ones are true and which ones aren't with Ron tomorrow uh, mm. here in McFarland, Wisconsin. And people can find out about that by going to uwsw.blogspot.com.
com. In any case, so Wilkie, uh, that, that nomination was stolen for Wilkie by British intelligence, which wanted to manipulate the U.S. into entering the war. And that would seem to have been a mistake if one is thinking in terms of national interests, because Roosevelt and the Americans proceeded to destroy the British Empire by defeating them in World War II. One could see World War II as essentially a case of the number two power, the United States, defeating and unseating the number one power, the British, and emerging with the biggest world empire. Um, And Roosevelt proceeded to steal the British gold reserves, which were transferred from the UK to the US. And of course, the empire then collapsed uh, during and after World War II. So uh, we have this bizarre conundrum in which it seems that British intelligence was so powerful in the United States that they were able to uh, kill the manager of the Republican convention and install their candidate against all odds. Nobody had even heard of Wilkie before this convention. And so using advanced PSYOPs techniques, they were able to stampede him in in a completely unbelievable way. And then, after doing that, British intelligence, it turned out all they really did was succeed in helping the Americans defeat them in World War II and plunder their empire, take all their gold, and take over the world. So that's kind of the normal narrative that one would come up with if we analyze this in terms of national interests of the U.K. and the U.S., But if indeed there is some kind of oligarchical group behind the scenes that's ruling things and doesn't really care that much about the national interests of the U.K. and the U.S., that might explain uh, this apparent contradiction. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I I, I devote a few chapters in uh, volume two of my Clash of the Two Americas, and I'd be curious to see uh, Ron Unce's book on this uh, topic, because I've I've read Wendell Wilkie's uh, One World, and I've read a couple of uh, biographies on him as well. Um, so yeah, I'd be curious to see Ron's, uh, construction of, uh, of this story. I, I personally, I have a few points of divergence in the analysis of the whole thing. Um, some of what I, go, I, I just produced a documentary on, uh, Smedley Butler. I don't know if I sent it to you, the Smedley Butler and the 1934 bankers coup. Yeah, uh, you, you did. I haven't had a chance to see that yet though. Yeah, check it out. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting because it, it does make a case and it, I mean, you know, I, I have imagery and videos in there of Madison Square Garden in 1939, February, uh, packed to the brim of, um, American Nazis. So there were Nazi rallies all throughout the streets of parades throughout New York. There was 20,000 people packed into Madison Square Gardens, George Washington, big giant flag with Nazi swastikas, all cases, uh, like on, on all sides of the, the auditorium, stormtroopers. You had Nazi camps as well for kids all over the USA. I think last time I, last thing I read was about 35 different Nazi summer camps being uh, hosted all over the United States. And um, a lot of the, because if, if I think everyone listening probably knows, uh, you'd have to be living under a rock to not know about Smedley Butler and the, you know, the general who had, who was being recruited by J.P. Morgan and this whole bankers complex around, you know, DuPont, Rockefeller, this whole machine to run a a coup to install him as a puppet dictator modeled on Mussolini in uh, in the United States, and he blew the whistle. So he took names, he played along for like eight months, developed a case, and then went to Congress. They did a hearing um, in, in at the end of 1934, found that he was right. And if you look at the um, the figures who were caught within this uh, this operation trying to recruit him, and keep in mind the American Legion was set up as a fascist organization, even the head of the Legion. Um, who I go through in my, my documentary, 
openly states that the Legion is to America what Mussolini's black shirts are to Italy. Um, fascism was being sold as the economic miracle solution to the Great Depression that itself was being had been created, you know, by a controlled demolition of the bubble economy in 1929. So all of these operatives, they were funding the growth of fascism as the the uh, program that would define the new world order with these fascist enforcers pushing a policy of eugenics, population control onto the masses and carving up the world in jurisdictions, you know, with the Anglo-American British fascist, the King of King Edward, the the great uncle of uh, Charles, who was the Nazi king, you know, saying we you know, writing letters to Hitler in 1940, saying you need to drop more bombs into England to, to submit them so that you can install me as your Nazi king. Um, I'll work with you. And uh, Neville Chamberlain also. And you had this whole thing inside the United States. And part of what I get across as well in the video is that a big part of the the movement to keep the U.S. from intervening to save Russia or save China, who were being decimated. You know, Russia lost 25 million people. China lost 10 million without the support of the Lend-Lease program that the U.S. had launched under FDR. Russia would not have had the supplies needed to fight, and it would have been turned into a slave colony. China would have been turned into a Japanese slave colony, too, guaranteed. Um, so the, the the opposition to a lot of that from the population would had been organized by the American Liberty League. The American Liberty League, if you look at that think tank, it was it had Henry Luce's complex around Time magazine. It had like a huge network of billions of dollars of Wall Street money backing it. Um and they were really trying to promote the U.S. culture to become fascist so that they could work with their Anglo-fascist uh, collaborators on the other side of the ocean and divvy up the world under that version of the New World Order, which was aborted at a certain point when Hitler sort of went off the reserve um, a little bit later. But, you know, one thing you've left out of this story, though, is mm. that fascism was, in to a great extent, a reaction against communism and Bolshevism, whatever you want to call it, which also had a very strong presence in the U.S. and also had a lot of influence in terms of pushing the U.S. Uh, for and against entry into World War II. It was sort of pro-intervention for quite a while, and then when uh, Hitler and Stalin made their deal and carved up Poland, suddenly the American Communist Party uh, became much more uh, pacifist. And then when that deal broke through, then they became bellicose again. So alongside British intelligence, the uh, communist movement was a major force in pushing the U.S. into World War II against the wishes of 80 percent of its population. And I don't think that it was purely uh, oligarch financed uh, fascism that convinced 80 percent of the population to not be interventionists. It was rather that they had seen the horrific losses in World War I, and they'd seen that there was absolutely no reason for the U.S. to get involved in World War I, and that the uh, principled course was to not take part in an insane mass no, you're right. slaughter. Yeah, you're right. No, World War One was an absolutely absurd meat grinder that disinter. I mean, that never should have happened. There was never, even today, there's no no historian can tell you there was a good reason for World War One to happen. It was completely artificially manipulated. Even less reason for the U.S. to enter it. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, Woodrow Wilson was a complete pro KKK uh, KKK traitor uh, who promoted the League of Nations as the first attempt at a one world government, um, and he was a eugenicist too, to boot. Um, not a big surprise. Um, so, yeah, they definitely disenfranchised a lot of Americans, and that's what, what Smedley Butler was able to tap into as well when he was, like, rallying 
when he was saying, you know, I was a, I was an enforcer for uh, crony capitalism, running, you know, regime change in uh, in Nicaragua and China for big oil and uh, and J.P. Morgan. So, I mean, Smedley Butler was an honest guy, and they didn't real. I think that they just thought that they could use him, um, but he he was because he wasn't getting like a big enough piece of the pie. But at the end of the day, there was a lot of good reason why you had all of these angry war veterans from the Legion who were like ready to follow Butler if he chose to. Uh, to just take control of the government. That being said, World War II was a slightly different beast because at the same time you had now um, a devout religious-like uh, satanic – I mean when you look at the, the Nazi party at the inner core, it was a satanic occult Thula society at the heart of it, which was itself something that stemmed right out of the same networks they gave us Alistair Crowley, that same, the same networks they gave us Albert Pike. And it was tied to a pseudoscience of eugenics as a religion, kind of like the proto-transhumanism. That's really what eugenics was. So people didn't really understand what the terms and conditions were of what was shaping the world at the time. I mean, these were just people who had been abused by years of Great Depression. They didn't really have, you know, a solid sense. Your average, you know, your average Joe in America didn't know what the hell was going on. They just knew that World War One was wrong. They were being influenced by various things. That impulse was correct, but at the same measure, was it best? That the U.S. would have been better if, you know, Hitler and and the Japanese fascists won the war and and destroyed, you know, Russia, China turned them into a slave colony and and you know <laughs> had a a global new world order way back then. Would that have been a better outcome? I don't know. Well, when, from the standpoint of somebody in the United States who thinks that the American Republic was really not such a terrible idea and that it should be run in a principled fashion which generally involves minding one's own business and, and never having a standing army and certainly uh, basically opposing all empires, starting with the possibility of any empire arising at home. World, the U.S. entry in World War II was an absolute disaster. It utterly destroyed once and for all the American Republic. Since World War II, the U.S. has been ruled by a, a military deep state. The uh, military intelligence industrial complex has uh, overthrown any semblance of Republican rule or democracy here in the United States, and they certainly uh, emphasized that message when they blew JFK's head off in broad daylight and uh, altered the film and <laughs> then had a mob hitman kill an alleged lone assassin on live television in front of many tens of millions of viewers. And his brother. Don't forget right. his brother, too. Yeah. So, so, and then but I wouldn't brother, say that World and, 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 so, so World War II basically destroyed the American Republic, in my view. And I think that if we had listened to Charles Lindbergh and those people and stayed out, uh, we might still have a republic. And I'm not convinced nah. that all of Eurasia would have turned into one big slave plantation. Uh, I, I mean, typically there are these horrors, and the U.S. certainly committed its share of horrors in World War II, including the fire bombings and the nuclear bombings and on and on and on. Uh, these horrors happened. There were going to be horrors. The Japanese committed horrors. The Germans committed horrors. The Russians committed horrors. Those horrors would happen. Uh, things would shake out and normalcy, quote unquote, would return and there would be some horror too. Well, we've had 60 million people murdered all over the world by the U.S. Uh, military intelligence uh, intervention since World War II. That was actually before the nearly 30 million Muslims were murdered. Uh, in the so-called war on terror following the 9-11 false flag. So the evil committed by the United States, which emerged as the dominant global empire after World War II, to my mind, has it, been every but bit it didn't. as, as it, great it didn't. as the evil that could possibly have come from German it, and Japanese victories. It didn't. 
like the the whole point of the show is to get across that the British Empire, like that Prince Charles is a reminder that the British Empire has always been an active force. And I would say it's even more strong today than it ever was before. And it took over control over the dead bodies of people like Roosevelt, who did. He was certainly assassinated. There was never an autopsy. And um, he even said, you know, his entire State Department, he can't trust anything within it. They all follow Churchill's people. Um, the entire operation to create a U.S.-Russia China alliance, which was what I mean, you could read what Roosevelt and Henry Wallace had organized with the Chinese, the Russians, as well as South Americans and Africans and, and even a lot of Middle East countries around their idea of a post-war age founded upon working on externalizing or internationalizing the New Deal successes that had transformed the Tennessee Valley, you know, backwater south of Hillbillies into an aerospace industrial class of engineers in a very quick period of time with a very high literacy. Um, that was something that was being approved. Those policies and programs for development of Africa, for South America, for China, the Sun Yat-sen program was being supported and defended by the American delegation of Bretton Woods under uh, Harry Dexter White against John Maynard Keynes and the other eugenicists who had been supporting the idea of, of defending the British Empire and a one world currency under the British, the Bank of International Settlements. And there was this whole idea of, again, a U.S.-Russia-China alliance for win-win cooperation. Russia was a subscriber to the IMF, which was supposed to be an operation that would provide long-term credit for the development of countries, the ending of, you know, the actualization of the the ideals of the four freedoms to end hunger, end starvation, end want, and expand massive full-spectrum development to everybody. And you could read the, the policy fights. You could read the discussions. It's all available on the public record. And it was all subverted by FDR's murder. And the entire ousting of, of all of his key allies, both from the OSS when that was disbanded by, by Truman, as well as the, the unnecessary dropping of bombs into Hiroshima, the absorption of the entire Nazi Jap Japanese war criminal complex into the U.S. CIA and MI6 complex that was then you know put to work in carrying out terrorist operations with the FBI, Operation Gladio being one of many aspects of this thing. And all of the, the, the devastating evil that we've seen the U.S. do, if you actually look at what was controlling the U.S., it was this deep state operation that took control. It was never American. It was always this other foreign entity that was waiting in the wings to take control over the dead bodies of JFK, of people like uh, like Bobby Kennedy even. It, it, but it's, it's, it's this other it, – it's been using – it's the way that the, the British <laughs> – they created the martial lord thing. It's like using the U.S. as their dumb giant to, you know, try to pummel everybody into uh, into a little box on behalf of an oligarchical elite of inbred sociopaths. That's just always been the thing. But it's no, not American. There's, there's, there's some truth to that. On the other hand, there's also some truth to the perspective that, like Woodrow Wilson, who had this idealistic vision for um, a better world, you know, not limiting our concern to within the borders, but rather to democratize the world, that FDR's idealism, his, his uh, similarly idealistic notions of how to improve the world, fell victim not only to a kind of conscious, malevolent conspiracy of evil Satanists, but were also victims of realities of human nature and especially geopolitical human nature as uh, realist analysis, analysts like, like Mersheimer uh, would probably say. Uh, so, I mean, my, I, I'm a little skeptical about whether things would be so much better if Roosevelt had lived, just because I just I wonder whether sort of the geopolitical realities wouldn't 
essentially force themselves on the situation and make that kind of idealistic program impossible to achieve. Mm. Well, I think that if you look at the the because it, it's a question of idealism, there's like blind faith and then there's actual reasonable faith. And I think the the Woodrow Wilson thing around the League of Nations was the most naive thing because the League of Nations was always premised around an oligarchical uh, destruction of sovereign nation states and the moving of the, the control of, of one's military into a supranational um, authority, untouchable by elected any elected regimes of accountability. Um, that was always what was what the League of Nations was behind was was about. Um, so Woodrow Wilson just being the fool and dupe and, and racist that he was his whole life, he was uh, a perfect puppet, kind of like a Biden type character, maybe a bit smarter. Um, but really, just that that level of personality. Wasn't saying too much. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, whereas FDR, if you actually look at the program um, of the technicalities of it all, in terms of how he was wiring the the Tennessee Valley Authority, the large-scale infrastructure projects that were being funded not through Wall Street banks but through the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, um, the Hoover Dam project, the, Co- the Colorado River project, the the St. Lawrence Seaway, like these were a grand design that was multi-generational in, in in outlook, tied to a very different idea of credit that we hadn't really seen since Lincoln's greenbacks ever in terms of practice. And if you look at what he was actually working through in terms of transform the U.S. military into an arsenal democracy, because at the time it's, it was a very different type of military than we have today, whereas today it's more of like the you know Samuel P. Huntington mercenary, you know, soldier in the state type of mercenary class of just your job is to follow orders and kill, whereas back then it was more of an engineer's war. So there was a, a very big engineering power where you can just not only destroy bridges, but you could build bridges. That's not there anymore. Um, and that was supposed to be what was converted into taking the, the war production and then turning it into – because you, when you build tanks, that same machine tool capacity can be retooled easily to build, to build trains or other points of vital infrastructure for Africa. But also, I mean, he had whole programs that were really viable with the Indi- – that he was working with leading Indians around, around Jawaharlal Nehru and uh, people in, in China around both the, the, the communists and uh, the Kuomintang who ended up becoming more traitorous fascist than anything else. But anyway – that's a side note. But there was a, there were whole workable projects to really build things. And when you build things that are of this type of durable long-term value, it is transformative. You can't stay the same person um, when you when you are, you know, creating such a better world for your kids. It changes you and you build new new uh, powers of mind by having technical training skill sets and also economic sovereignty by having industries in Africa, which was never granted. So, I mean, I, I think it's a type of, of idealism which is practical. It's not just utopic. Um, whether or not, you know, there was going to be all angels and stardust and unicorns and rainbows, I mean, no. I mean, it was going to be a fight. There was always going to be, you know, satanic operatives out to sabotage and destroy these things from, from any way they could. But it was viable. It really, I could, it really could work. It's working today with, with China and Russia's approach, especially China's approach to building the Belt and Road Initiative. It's a similar type of, of paradigm in long-term thinking and transforming the conditions economically of lives of people in Asia and Africa, which is – it scares the oligarchy because it works. And I think it's, it's a very similar spirit that I saw coming out of the, uh, the FDR network um, who uh, – yeah, who were operating in their own time.
and, and I agree with you that public banking financing infrastructure that's genuinely uh, life enhancing for ordinary people is absolutely key to this. And so uh, you may be onto something with championing uh, Roosevelt in that respect. Well, let's let's talk a little more about the Great Reset, the Build Back Better. So, I mean, the phrase Build Back Better, it sounds like the kind of thing that you would support. However, what it really seems to be about is what they really want to build is a cybernetic control network designed to seize control of people's consciousnesses and lives so that they will own nothing and be happy, so that they'll be content with uh, a big you know, destruction of their their lifestyle and, and a restriction of their freedom. And so they're, they're, they have these ambitious infrastructure projects, but they want an infrastructure of total control. Uh, they're not interested in enhancing life. They're interested in getting control over their slaves so that they can degrade life. And uh, that doesn't strike me as a vision uh, that's very attractive. Uh, do you think Charles is is part of that approach to the so-called Great Reset? And uh, how can we uh, oppose this? Oh, he most certainly is. Yeah, he really um, situates his identity, I think, deeply in what, you know, in the footsteps of his father. Um, who was very self-aware of his role in advancing a, a paradigm. But, you know, his Charles is, is the head of the UK World Wildlife Fund. His father was the co-founder of the World Wildlife Fund originally, which was just designed in 1961 to raise money for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature that Julian Huxley, the, the president of the Eugenic Society, right, had set up in 1947 as a way not to save nature. That was on the surface. But really, the idea was to create a new paradigm in society that would tr would change the focus from being based upon the ideal of protecting humanity from empire, which was the dominant sort of ethos in America as well as beyond before that time, and instead redirect the focus to saving nature from humanity. And that took a lot of murder of people like Enrico Mattei, Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, you know, the, the Kennedys we talked about, Martin Luther King, okay. Malcolm X. But, but more, the Kennedys and Dag Hammarskjöld were killed by Zionists primarily, weren't they? Um, when you look behind the scenes in terms of the Operation Gladio networks that are tied to the Mossad, that are tied to MI6. I mean, MI6 founded the state of Israel, not MI6, the, the British Empire. The leading figures around the roundtable movement of Cecil Rhodes, Milner, had founded the had created the Balfour uh, Accords. People like Leo Amory was a, a co-author of the Balfour Accords. That's also a Fabian Society operation that established with some Rothschild money as well, the, the basis for, um, you know, political Zionism in the state of Israel, the uh, Shin Bet Mossad are directly tied as long along with I mean, Saudi intelligence has been a mixed bag, but generally under the, the sway of this thing too, the British Empire created the, the House of Saud and installed them as the little, you know, little warlords of, uh, of the Gulf area. But all of these things have been all geopolitical pawns in a broader global operation that's that's highly interconnected. And it's associated with the same old nobility that goes back to, you know, the same inbred elites that go that were dominant in, in the ancient Roman world and beyond. Um, I don't it's not, you know, when you're dealing with these guys, it's because if you look at what Dag Hammarskjöld or Matei were doing, that gives you a sense of, well, they were completely they were they were strong. Catholic, they were Catholic in the best sense of the word, Christians who believed that man is made in the image of God. They were devout. They were willing to die for their ideals, and they had workable functional programs for the industrialization of Africa. Matei had massive projects for, for lighting Africa up. Um, so did, I mean, there's a huge list 
of great statesmen who were assassinated because they were anti-Malthusian. That's the core religious ideology of Satanism is this population control thing, right? Keep people in the caves, keep them dumb, keep them underpopulated. And all of these figures who were killed were all in opposition to that. And there's many aspects of what was deployed to kill them. But uh, but it's all ultimately the same hydra, you know, with many heads. That's how I see it. So do you think but, that it, yeah. it is uh, trying, you know, reducing the population growth of indigenous people in Europe and replacing them with immigrants? Is that part of this plan? There are a lot of people who believe that. I got to think about it more. I think that there might be something to it. I mean, certainly Soros, you know, I, I've heard a thing. I've read into the Kalergi plan a little bit and, and certainly Soros does that. There, there's many ways of undermining national sovereignty uh, culturally. That's it seems to be one of them. Just dilute in, in the case of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, he put forth the this idea in the, in the late 60s and 70s called the multicultural mosaic. So have a society that is. That you have an empire that encourages multiculturalism, but ironically for racist ends, because you have a mosaic which which is very much different from the American melting pot idea. In the American melting pot idea, it was that you know you can maintain your individual uh, cultural identity as an Irish or, or uh, an Italian or whatever immigrant, but there was something still universal that in America in the in the heart of Americanism that was something you would tap into, and it worked pretty well. By and large. Because the public schools brainwashed the kids who then felt ashamed of their immigrant parents and the kids. Well, but that, that's the very... abuse of it. So then then you have the the abuse of this thing and, and the uh, push for like um, artificial assimilation under the, like this bad manifest destiny idea, too. So like in the case of America, the way I try to look at it, I wrote the book called The Clash of the Two Americas to get across that the the better America models itself. And the founding fathers did on the Roman Republic of people like Cicero. Um, which had a, it was this was pre-empire, right? And then when Cicero dies, it was kind of like the moment that that Athens killed Socrates, and Athens then went full empire. Sort of the same thing for for Rome and the deep state aspect. You know, the neocon, all of these different variants throughout the 19th century, even before that, um, modeled their America on the Roman Empire of America. The idea of you know the unipolar end of history type of logic that we would be finally the thing that actualizes the aspirations of the Roman Empire cults, you know, <laughs> inner, inner controlling cults and all. Um, and, so and they're, the, they're pushing for one world state, aren't they? Do you think they're going to make Charles uh, the king of the world? I mean, that's sort of what they want. I mean, the, the, they, they, they don't care about Charles per se. It's they, they care about the institution of the crown, like the, they need sort of an alpha family that themselves are, are controlled, handled, but that that institution of the crown is what is known as the fount of all honors. I get across that in my new article. You know, it, it's a legal term used in the British Commonwealth that is the idea that all authority for law, both official and also through the secret societies, the different Masonic orders that are beholden to the crown, all get their authority from the crown itself as a hereditary institution. So you could build an entire international, you know, um, uh, privy council system an entire global shadow government around that above the elected sort of visible veneers of government that are for the plebes. Wow. And uh, they want to keep that. And I do think that with the greater global Britain idea that they're trying to push their ideas that yeah, we'll have like a new global British empire actualizing Cecil Rhodes's uh, vision in his 1877 will. Uh, recapturing the U.S. as part of the Five Eyes, you know, subduing so, the world. So, no wonder they're they're 
forcing the entire world to kind of you know salute the new uh, King Charles the Third, yeah. and making such a big spectacle out of it because they they want to make him king of the world. Well, yeah, uh, I'm I'm not going to be a subject. I'm not going to bow down and uh, kiss the ring. Well, thank you so much, Matt Aaron. <laughs> it's always good talking with you. Very yeah, stimulating likewise. stuff. I appreciate your your erudition on these topics, and we'll hopefully have you back soon. Hopefully. All right. Take care. All right. It's Matt Arrett of CanadianPatriot.org and also Matthew MatthewArrett.substack.com. Uh, Kevin Barrett of TroopsYouHad.com, standing up against the king of the world. <laughs> See you all next week. Have fun.